the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. But the reality is that other views and beliefs have crept in because the foundational truths of God's Word have been neglected. They have been left stagnant. They are suppressed. And they have not been faithfully passed on. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. This morning we begin a new series a multi-week series on women's head coverings. Yes, head coverings. Perhaps one of the most confusing and most joked about issues in all of the New Testament. But as I was explaining and encouraging one of our visitors this morning, we preach the Bible verse by verse. We're not going to skip a verse or passage just because it's confusing or seems silly or seems outdated. But as we go through this series, I believe you will be glad, as I am, that we did not skip this portion of Scripture, because as we saw in our last series, that centered, frankly, largely around temple meat. The issue is bigger than the specifics. In other words, the issue is bigger than head coverings. For the meat, it was a powerful lesson on Christian liberty and glorifying God and all that we do. In fact, as we saw, 1 Corinthians 10.31 is part of that teaching regarding temple meat. Now, though the Corinthians' specific question to Paul is about head coverings, and we believe that head coverings was something localized, not just in that time period, but localized to Corinth, the bigger issue, as we will see over the next few weeks, involves lofty issues such as honor, glory, society, and authority. And as we unpack this particular issue that is localized to the culture of ancient Corinth, we will learn valuable lessons, not only regarding the role of women, but also the role of the church as a whole. Before we get into the particulars, Paul begins with the general, and so shall we. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this morning we'll look at verses 2 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 And three, he writes, Now I praise you because you remembered me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. This morning, three foundational principles of biblical headship. They're foundational. This is how he begins. They will undergird everything that we will see not just about head coverings, but what head coverings represent and why the issue was so important that the Corinthians asked Paul about it and Paul took the time to respond. Three foundational principles of biblical headship. 
The first foundation is the praise of adherence. The praise of adherence. In verse 2, he says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is very encouraging. Despite all the issues that Paul has addressed in this particular church, they are not total degenerates. They are still adhering to the doctrine that Paul has taught them. They are still respecting his apostleship and submitting to it. In fact, this very letter is him answering their questions because they want clarification from the apostle on what to do regarding certain areas. Sure, they may have been proud, hoping that Paul would knock down one group and to advance another group, but they submitted to him nonetheless. And if you recall, again, much of this letter is a result of their trusting Paul to answer their questions. Back in chapter 7 and verse 1, he makes specific mention of, quote, the things which they wrote to him about. That is, questions that had been sent to Paul for him to answer in regard to biblical doctrine and Christian living. In other words, despite all their weaknesses, despite all their sins, they want to know what is best and most honoring to God. And this should be our desire too when we listen to or read the Word. And here we see that Paul praises the Corinthians for a couple of things. Namely, remembering Paul in everything and holding firmly to the traditions that he delivered to them. First, remembering Paul in everything. This is not a stroking of Paul's ego to help him with his low self-esteem. Nor is this a sinfully proud moment in Paul's life where he praises them for thinking about him. This is about the gospel. This is about living out the gospel. They correctly respect and submit to Paul's apostolic authority. His God-given authority as a teacher and proclaimer of God's word, one of the men God uses to establish the church. And we can easily understand this as we respect those that teach us the Word of God, but this is, of course, a bit different. What Paul was teaching them was, unbeknownst to them, and probably even to Paul, was that much of his teaching was the Word of God. It was canonized as Scripture. There was no New Testament yet. Old Testament, of course. There was no New Testament yet. So how much more honorable to trust and listen to Paul when they didn't have the New Testament Scriptures to compare his words to? Remember, by all accounts, this is by no means a mature group of Christians. Not only is it the early church without the benefit of centuries of church growth holding them up, they are, as far as the universal church is concerned, the infants. They are the first They are the beginning. We can be gracious to them as we read of their failures. They, in many ways, did not know any better. They couldn't even pick up a Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this? And yet, they trusted Paul. They remembered him in everything. They are, as we know, practicing some pretty gross sin. Nevertheless, they respect, they trust, they remember Paul in everything. It's because of this foundational trust in Paul, as well as his apostolic authority, that leads to the next phrase, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 
Traditions is a word that we're familiar with. Of course, this goes beyond just this is our tradition. Christmas morning, we open gifts or something like that. It's not as accurately translated teachings in the NIV. That's what it says in the NIV. It's not accurate to say just teachings. Traditions simply means that which is passed on. It's an old word and has the picture of something handed from one person to another. You get this. It's a tradition. In this case, it is something that is taught. It is a teaching. And in the New Testament, this word is used both negatively and positively. Negatively, it refers to man-made ideas or practices, specifically ones that counter the doctrines of the Christian faith and, for the Israelites at least, led them astray, caused many problems, legalism, things like that. Positively, this word is used in the New Testament to, re- to refer to, of course, God-centered teaching. This can be theology, but it can all- also be issues of lifestyle and morality. Although, of course, as we as Christians know, theology and issues of lifestyle and morality are interwoven. A couple examples of the negative use would be in Mark 7. When the scribes and Pharisees come and they confront Jesus, they ask why his disciples do not wash their hands before they eat, thus breaking the tradition of the elders. That's important. Uh, Keep in mind, this isn't just go to the sink with running water and wash their hands. This was a tradition that had been created among the Jews that involved a lot a lot more than even the Old Testament commanded. And so he says, look at your disciples. Remember, they're always trying to find faults with Jesus and his disciples. They're, not, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. We all do this. This is what the rabbis have taught us generation after generation. But then later in the same scene, Jesus responds with the same Greek word. Remember, we're giving example of a negative usage here. And ask why they set aside the commandment of God in order to follow those traditions. Same word we have in 1 Corinthians. And so you have a clear example of the contrast between the commands of God and man-made traditions. An example of the positive sense of the word is in 2 Thessalonians 2. I'd like you to turn there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. And again, this is the exact same Greek word we saw in Mark, and it's the exact same Greek word that we see in 1 Corinthians 11.2. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, we understand that this being Scripture, that he is talking about the traditions which would be the commands of God, not the traditions passed down by rabbis or someone else. Turn to chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Now remember the principle, context is king. We understand when tradition is something negative, when it's man-made, it is in fact sinful and misleading by the context. 
And here again in first Thess- or Second Thessalonians, rather, we've seen in the context it is something good, it is something biblical, it is something from God. This is a principle that we need to adhere to all the time. There is much that we do that we call sin or not sin, and it's not from Scripture. It is the American church culture. It is tradition. You see, uh, even more so in many religions, where traditions are held to the same level as Scripture. Catholicism would probably be one of the biggest examples of this. This is very dangerous. Because it's not from the Bible, it's not from God, it's from men who created these traditions. But again, when we look at that word in the context of Scripture, the immediate context is king. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. In this context, traditions can refer to any godly instruction that Paul communicated to them when he was in Corinth. Again, this can be doctrine and practice, both of which we see in Scripture. Another way to put this is that the traditions she refers to here are apostolic traditions and not ecclesiastical. Let me explain what that means. Apostolic. He has his apostolic authority from God. And so what he says is from God. They are from God, though they come out of the mouth of a man. They do not come from the church. Clear examples would be those I just referred to regarding the traditions from Jewish elders versus from God and other religions that we see today. We need to verify these things from the Bible. There is nothing wrong with a tradition that you have in your home. There's nothing wrong with a pattern or tradition you practice in church. For example, what we do here at this church is we take communion once a month rather than twice a year or rather than weekly. We do it the first Sunday of the month. We could call that a tradition. What we're talking about when it is bad is when tradition is held to the level of Scripture where people can be rebuked and called sinners and even put out of the church because they don't hold to that which is man-made. That is wrong. We can't do that. Thankfully, unlike the Corinthians, we have the Scriptures and we can measure against the Scriptures and the very Word of God. And this point not only gives us confidence in Paul's authority and joy in the Corinthians' obedience, but also serves as a reminder of what we are to focus on. Paul is praising them for sticking to the Word of God. Can the same be said of us? Can we be praised for our adherence to the Word and the teaching of it? Whatever form that may take. Sermons on Sunday morning, books you read, blogs you read, articles you read whatever it may be. Is this what you are known for? Because what we are praised for generally is what we're known for, right? It may vary context to context. At work, if you're the one guy who fixed the project at the last moment before the CEO flew in to see what you guys had, that's what you're known for. That's what you're praised for. He's the guy. Remember that guy? He saved us. In your life, is obedience to the word Adherence to the word, what you are praised for. Is that what you're known for? Is that what you seek to be known for? Notice that they didn't just hold on to it. They held firmly to it, as should we. So first, what do you want to be known for? The best this, the best that, or do you want to just be faithful? Do you want to just be faithful? 
to be known to be faithful. Now, I want to I be the best driver. I want to be the best worker. I want to be... That's great if it's because you want to be faithful to the Lord. And that bleeds into your work and your Uber driving and your music playing and your preaching and whatever it may be. But I find it very helpful that they held firmly to these truths. When I proposed to my wife... I was living overseas. I flew to the United States to surprise her and to pop the question. And I was going to stay for a couple weeks. And so, as you can imagine, like you do, when you're flying across an ocean to stay somewhere else for a couple weeks, I had quite a bit of stuff with me. I had luggage, I had clothing, I had toiletries, I had my laptop, I had my passport, all the usual stuff for this proposal with the addition of one unique uniquely small, and uniquely expensive item, the engagement ring. And as much as I didn't want to lose my luggage, if that's ever happened to you, you know how terrible that is. I especially didn't want to lose, like, my passport or my laptop. But I definitely did not want to lose that ring, which is why I kept it in the box and wrapped it in not one, not two, but three T-shirts before I checked it into my luggage. No, of course not. I didn't check it in. I kept it with me. It was in my pocket, and I was even, I mean, it's a long flight. Right? From where I was living, there's no direct flight, so by the time you get to the United States, you've been traveling uh, about 24 hours. And so there's a lot of layovers, there's a lot of moving, there's a lot of layovers and passport control in countries and where lines are not a thing, and so people are shoving. And then you have the transatlantic flight, which is a long one. And one of my secrets to getting over jet lag is to not sleep on the plane, so when you do get there, you muscle through it till nighttime, you're so tired, you sleep. But inevitably, I do take a little nap. But in that seat, I had it in my pocket. And I was scared to, that it would fall out of my pocket. That's happened to you, right? They tell you, the flight attendants, please check your seat pockets and your seats in case anything fell out. And so not only did I shove that ring as far as I could in my pocket, I held on to it that whole time. Just hand in my pocket, just holding on to that ring, trusting that it was still in there because I dare not check it in case someone see it. And then I'm all scared. Someone will try to take it. I held on to it. And I held on to it tightly. It was the most valuable thing in my possession that day. To the point that though I was uncomfortable, though I was scared, though it hurt me to carry the rest of my luggage with the one free arm, I did not want to let go. And that's what Paul is saying, how the Corinthians held on to his teaching. And that's how we should hold on to the teaching of the Word of God. You hold on to it in a way that shows that it is indeed the most valuable thing in your possession. Don't let go. Of course, holding on firmly doesn't just mean memorize it. It doesn't mean hold your physical Bible firmly. It means hold on to it firmly in the practice of your life to gauge every decision, every word, every thought, through the Word of God. Hold on to it firmly. We need to do this with the Word of God. 
We cannot just hold it tight to our chest for ourselves like that engagement ring. We need to share it with others as well. And that leads us to our second foundational principle of biblical headship, the passing of doctrine. The passing of doctrine. This is also in verse 2 in the end. Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Just as we received, accept, and adhere, so we should pass on doctrine to others. Paul passed them on. Then those people passed them on. And from generation to generation it went. How do we know that the Corinthians and the early church passed it on? Because we exist right now. They pass it on, then they pass it on for some 2,000 years. And we're going to keep passing it on, then our children will pass it on, then our grandchildren will pass it on, all the way up to who knows when the Lord returns. Even with the advent of the printing press, then modern technology, the existence of the Bible and sermons just sits there if you don't do something to pass them on. Even if it's like, hey, there's this great website, you should check it out. Pass it on. And the reason I want to emphasize that before getting into the whole topic of biblical headship is to answer the question, why is a controversial topic controversial? Why is a controversial topic controversial? And why does that change from culture to culture and generation to generation? 75 years ago, probably much less than that, homosexuality or the disregard of homosexuality was not a controversial topic. A hundred years ago, being pro-life was not a controversial view. What makes a controversial topic controversial? Well, at the very basic level, because someone disagrees. But disagrees to the point that their view becomes commonplace. See, if there's only two or three people who say, no, 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 abortion is good, it's not controversial. But when it advances to a point where it's a major issue in society, where it advances to a point that it must be brought up in order to win a political race, or doesn't even need to be brought up because they just know where your stance is. It's so ingrained in political parties. It becomes a controversial topic. People disagree to the point that their view becomes commonplace. And why would someone have another opinion that carries so much weight? How do these come about? Those timelines that I just gave you that most of you nodded to are not very long when compared to the history of man or even the existence of, say, the United States of America. More often than not, something becomes weighty and controversial simply because someone with the other viewpoint got to that person before someone else did and convinced them that that was the way. Hmm, that makes sense. So I will pass it on and I will pass it on, and I will pass it on. Many of you see this. You have people who generally have a lot harder time with issues such as the ones I just mentioned and many others you're probably thinking of that pop into your head. They have a harder time when they get saved after four years of education at a liberal university or college than if they were saved before because someone else got to them first, you see. It's a simple principle. You get it. If you've had children or raised children, you really get this. It's simply what you've taught them. They start doing things, believing things, before they even understand why, because you got to them first before someone else came in. Now, I understand that there are many other factors. I'm very oversimplifying this. People's views change. Cultures change. 
when it comes to spiritual issues and biblical truth, of course, there's major factors such as the depravity of man and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is that other views and beliefs have crept in because the foundational truths of God's Word have been neglected. They have been left stagnant. They are suppressed. And they have not been faithfully passed on. If someone randomly came up to you without you having any former knowledge, you don't know anything about this, we all do, but just suppose you don't, and says the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. Be like, the who, what now? You just make up that number? That's just a year that you liked? How do you know? But in reality, if someone were to tell you that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, you would already know that. You're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that, but yeah, I learned that in school. So much so that probably no one would come up to you and say the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776 because we all know that. Why? Because you learned it in school or you learned it in your studies for your citizenship or green card exam and we learned it from generation to generation because someone who was actually there recorded the event and then delivered it, using Paul's word, from generation to generation, hand to hand, mind to mind. And so there is no way that that truth could be infiltrated later on if someone said, no, 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 it was 1777. Because it was a cold, hard fact that was passed on from hand to hand. This is why it's so important that the truth is passed on. Another view can only come in and contaminate the truth when there is a break in the chain of custody. And as Christians, we need to prioritize, we need to hold fast and deliver the truth. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.